This is Guns and Butter. trying to lay out right now is the larger issue of the metaverse in that blockchain is foundational to tracking assets from the material world into the digital world before advancing forward what are the consequences because once we go far enough i think it's going to be very hard to back out and that has profound implications for babies and children and the unborn and all of the other beings that we share the world with if we decide to live in the metaverse and the blockchain is the system that is required to make the metaverse happen. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Allison McDowell. Today's show, Blockchain Keys Unlock a Murky Metaverse. What you don't know about digital twins could hurt you. Allison McDowell is a pioneering independent researcher. Her journey into activism began as the parent of a public school student. In 2013, Boston Consulting Group closed 23 schools in Philadelphia. This led her to begin examining money, power, and influence in her city. Her work interrogates the global finance and technology interests that, under the rising biosecurity state, are advancing a transhumanist program that would virtualize humans as digital commodities to be fed into futures markets to profit hedge funds. What started out as one mom's attempt to rein in standardized testing and educational surveillance evolved into an international effort to catalyze a global peace movement against digital identity and the World Economic Forum's planned Internet of Bodies. Allison McDowell, welcome back. Uh, thank you, Bonnie. I'm glad to be chatting again. Yeah, it's great to have the chance to try and catch up with your work, or as much as is possible in one hour. I'd like to begin with a deep dive into blockchain, what it is, how it's constructed, and what it is being used for, and what it will be used for in the future. Most of us at this point are at least aware of cryptocurrency, be it Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, we may not understand it, but we know that it is used as an investment or a payment system. But blockchain itself, at a much more fundamental level, is, as you pointed out, the building block of the virtual metaverse. What is blockchain? How is it constructed? And where did it come from? That's the question, right? <laughs> I guess depending on where you think it comes from depends on if it's liberation or incarceration. Um, uh, so essentially, my my introduction to blockchain was different from most people. Most people get introduced to blockchain because they're involved in some sort of cryptocurrency investments or speculation or payment systems. Um, my introduction to blockchain was about three years ago. Um, in 2017, I believe it was, I was watching four hours of New America Think Tank and the World Bank on blockchain. <laughs> and like sandwiched in the middle of the four hours, there was this guy, Sean Conway, who was at the time was something called Trust Lab. And, and it was all about humanitarian aid and how they were going to put all of the aid 
onto blockchain to track it to make sure that nobody you know mis misused the resources such as they were. Um, but when I got to digging in a little bit more into to blockchain, it was very much about linking um, resources to individual digital identities. And I found out more about the World Wide Web Consortium's uh, self-sovereign digital identity program and that many of these um, programs that essentially assign a unique identifier initially for people, but ultimately the goal is like everything on the planet <laughs> becomes tracked in this um, digital wireframe that's projected into a simulation. But it took me a while to get to that point. So Sh Sean Conway was involved with something called also IXO Foundation and uh, Innovation Edge in Cape Town, South Africa. And so what they were doing was offering uh, reimbursement for early childhood uh, pre-K providers uh, on the condition that the children all be put on blockchain. And they framed it in this very benevolent and paternalistic terms that, um, you know, then they could earn social capital by going to preschool. But ultimately, it was all about sort of oversight and compliance purposes. And eventually, all of the metadata attached to that would be part of someone's um, digital footprint, their digital twin that they keep talking about. So my, my exposure to that, like, I mean, I found that really problematic to, to imagine that children then become these investment commodities and are tracked before they even have any idea what's going on in the world, that they're already starting to have their future, um, their past is already informing what their future course is going to take based on their data that is stored in their permanent ledger. Um, this is very different from individuals who come into the, from maybe the crypto space who imagine it as like, oh, this is going to be wonderful because you'll be in control of your data. Um, not thinking that what it means is actually you will become a commodity. Um, you will be a commodity who's maybe ostensibly a little bit more in charge of managing how you're a commodity. But at the foundational level, once you are tagged in the system, you have become a global commodity, whether you like it or not. Um, so that's my sense of the, of the blockchain is less about the money and more about identity management, which we can see. And, you know, I saw this coming the month after the pandemic was announced. Um, you know, I was already writing things saying, OK, I think this is how this digital identity is going to come online now. You know, they're going to use uh, national security interests and public health to sort of enforce a blockchain identity. And, and that is what is ultimately happening with these various uh, medical passports that are, um, you know, at this point, somewhat optional in certain cases, but th the goal is, is to make them more universal. Um, so the blockchain itself essentially is a ledger system. Now that the people who advance blockchain as a good thing say, well, it's decentralized and it's a very secure and, um, and it's a way of keeping track of all of these bits of information. Um, but ultimately, this ledger system was put in place to allow continued global economic growth in a way that would not be possible if we were to confine ourselves to the material physical limits of the natural world. Like eventually we were going to start to run out of resources. I mean, not everyday people necessarily, but those who are these giant asset holders and the war machine and other things are like consuming vast amounts of resources. And eventually they're going to sort of bump up against the material limits of the physical world. Um, once you build the metaverse, it's a digital world. And so while there are still, um, you know, energy requirements to run the servers and to manage the, you know, devices and the technology, 
it, it is a smaller amount than what the material world manifests. And especially once, you know, with Moore's law, once they get it at quantum and nano, it will be um, even less consumption of energy to build a virtual world. And in the virtual world, I think they imagine that they can have this unlimited growth. That is the demand of sort of the, the framework of capitalism as that is unending growth. Um, and then therefore, essentially, we are turning our world into a synthetic world in order to maintain the growth that is expected. And why is blockchain so hard to understand? What is it? I mean, it's a ledger system, but is it a series of letters or numbers? What What is it? <laughs> well, if you imagine... Um, so it's, it's tied in with the political economy, how, how it is structured. And if you understand it as an accounting system, not just a money system, but a transaction system, um, that transaction can include money, but it can also include um, a social transaction, a transaction with the built environment. Anything that, that can be made into a transaction can be logged on the ledger. Um, the last time we had a really huge change in how the global economy worked was you know, in the, the age of discovery and maritime trade and that, that sort of age that also much of that trade was in enslaved people, right? And, and instead of just going to a marketplace and a buyer and seller exchange items and currency in the moment and then it was settled, the, the, the global trade with the sailing ships had to be done across time and space, right? They had to have a way of keeping track of accounts. And so the double entry bookkeeping that originated in Africa and then was widely adopted through the Catholic Church in Europe at that time um, became what was needed to allow that that economic system to to expand, you know, to its logical conclusion. So now the next series is is to allow the digital world to transact. Blockchain is about tracking digital assets, and so that that is inherently what it is. Um, instead of double entry like an accounting book. It's a series of blocks, you know, what they conceive of as blocks. And often you'll see um, in terms of design ways, um, if you if you pivot a 3D wireframe of a cube, it's also a hexagon. So you'll see hexagons used very widely in a lot of design motifs and these cubes. So it's it's the idea that you, you create lines of cubes that are sandwiched into place with cryptography, with these um, challenging electronic puzzles that when you, when computing systems successfully process the puzzles, they can um, get rewarded in Bitcoin or the, the, the token payments for the work, quote unquote, proof of work of putting that together. Now, that's quite challenging to bring to scale. And so what we're seeing now, um, it's energy intensive and it's time intensive. And we're used to things happening immediately, right? Like if you want to send a payment to someone in India, like you're not going to wait for your digital transaction to take a couple hours to clear. Like you want it pretty much instantaneous. And that is very challenging to do within the existing blockchain system at scale, right? If everybody started to do that, the whole system, there would be too much cryptography to happen. And so what they've done is they've created side chains um, and other layers, like in, in um, uh, Bitcoin, it's the the block block stream has a lightning network protocol, um, and a lot of the 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 um, the blockchain platforms have additional layers that sort of do the work over to the side and then like loop it back in. But in doing that, is actually less secure. Um, 
so these are, it's sort of a workaround. You've got the main blockchain and then you have these side chains. And then ultimately the next layer that layers that are coming in are these smart contracts, which are essentially what they sound like. They're, they're contracts, but they're written into computer code. Um, and when the conditions of contracts are verified with data, um, then they automatically process. Um, so that's these are these other layers that are coming in. Um, you know, Cardano is one of the largest uh, blockchain identity case uses coming online now in Ethiopia. And my understanding is they just had a, a big conference a couple weeks ago where they announced their smart contract layer, which is called Hydra. That's quite interesting to watch and see how they branded Hydra <laughs> because it's essentially this purple dragon with multiple heads flying around and implying like these side chains and these you know connections with their smart contracts are are like Hydras which um, are a bit intimidating actually if you um, look at how they branded it those Hydras are they have pretty sharp teeth <laughs> so it's an interesting choice of representation of, of the scheme you mentioned the hexagons, and we uh, touched on that in our first show, these hexagonal tiles. Now, if you were to, if you wanted to look at a blockchain, could you see one? And if you could, what would it look like? I mean, I don't think that you actually, <laughs> I mean... I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be so literal, but I'm kind of dumb on this. Well, I mean, if you imagine like data stored in server farms, it's like um, there are many electronical systems in the world that, that are not, that are sort of beyond our ability to perceive of them with our current senses, if that makes sense. Like, I mean, what, what they are doing is if, if, if regular people had to navigate all the, the cryptography and the public keys and the private keys and all of this stuff, like in, in a very literal computational framework, it would be over the heads of most people. And so what they do is they come up with stuff called like decentralized apps and wallets that make the interface simpler and make it look just like sort of a, an online payment system, as opposed to something that is much more complex with the cryptography. But yeah, I mean, it's data that lives in a server farm. So what does that look like, right? The, the, the idea is that the data is stored over many, many different computing systems, server systems, so that cannot be hacked. And so that is the framework for it not being, um, it being secure. Now, the, the, the challenge with the security on that is when you start having wallets and apps and side chains and things, and then you introduce vulnerabilities into the system, both human error and other, you know, intentional and accidental. Right, because you have pointed out that blockchain is hackable, but you also feel that blockchain is dangerous. Is that correct? And if so, why? Well, I mean, the, the blockchain people will say it's not hackable. I will say there are vulnerabilities in the, the larger structural systems, okay? So just, just to clarify that. Um, what I'm trying to say is that while the vast majority of people who talk about blockchain are talking about it mostly as a financial transaction. Um, increasingly, people are understanding it as an identity system because of what's been unfolding around the health passport systems, the medical passporting. People are starting to understand about having a digital identifier that's linked to how you are able to move in the world. So that's, you know, that's another piece. Um, the question that I'm trying to lay out right now is the larger issue of the metaverse in that 
blockchain is foundational to tracking assets from the material world into the digital world. And things that are just fully digital assets that, that never come out of the digital world other than maybe you see them that you have them on a device, right? These NFTs and that sort of thing. Um, and then my larger question is, are we going to agree as a society that avatar life, living as an avatar, where a significant amount of our lived experience is in digital space, is what we want? And then knowing that many of these technologies, um, the, the creation of um, online digital spaces are tied into military research and development and simulation, many of like the video game worlds and the simulation worlds, um, so that we may inhabit digital spaces and feel like they are liberating. But ultimately, it's kind of like what I talk about Google. Google has like all sorts of amazing things, but you agree to live in Google's box. And if Google doesn't do it, then you're not having that, right? So if we agree to live in the metaverse, all of the amazing things of being a real person, both beautiful and terrifying of, of being a living being in a natural world um, will start to crumble away, I think. And um, Werner Vinge, who is a, a math computer science emeritus professor at UC San Diego, he was the one who first postulated the singularity and he has a, a really interesting book called Rainbow's End. And in this book, it was sort of positing a near future dystopia where the real world falls apart as everyone starts to wear wearable technology and live in an augmented world so that everybody just chooses their own on-demand version of the world. Um, and I don't think that um, we are fully prepared morally to advance into these spaces before having bigger conversations. And I think we have to um, as a as a society, both in the United States and abroad, understand that this is the next phase of manifest destiny is the metaverse. And how did that work out the last time for the original people? Not so great. And um, before advancing forward, what are the consequences? Because once we go far enough, I think it's going to be very hard to back out. And that has profound implications for um babies and children and the unborn and all of the other beings that we share the world with if we decide to live in the metaverse. And the blockchain is the system that is required to make the metaverse happen. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher Allison McDowell. Today's show, Blockchain Keys Unlock a Murky Metaverse. What you don't know about digital twins could hurt you. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to blockchain someone? Is this something that can be done to a person? For instance, I saw you post on Twitter about humanitarian donations being given to impoverished people in blockchain in other countries to buy food. What does this entail, and is it pernicious? Well, so part of the element of the blockchain, the finance piece, is that um, the the value in those tokens, the, the money such as it is, uh, can be programmed, right? Much of the work that I have done, you know, pre-pandemic was around uh, what I, I see as a predatory aspect of using social um, problems and trauma and vulnerable populations to create 
uh, new ways of generating value for the most elite, wealthy people of the world. Um, essentially managed poverty, and, and not that poverty hasn't always been managed in a certain way, but when combined with the capture of biometric data and smart city sensor networks and you know satellite surveillance systems um, becomes really, really repressive. Um, but it's all framed in ways that are supposed to sound laudable and, and um, you know, like these folks are benefactors. So a lot of, as, as I'd mentioned earlier, these programs were piloted through global aid systems. Um, now they're coming back to the United States. I'm actually, I'm going to be going down to Austin this week and Austin has its own uh, blockchain identity program to uh, track uh, unhoused people and their medical records. So it's not exclusively in um, war-torn or you know global South countries. Uh, but these big pots of money, and who, who would stand up for those communities, right? There's not a lot of people who would intervene if they saw something go amiss, especially if it was being framed as a good thing. So um, the Syrian refugees in particular uh, were a pilot, and they would gather people's uh, retinal scans and uh, attach their food assistance to it. So when they go to the grocery store, they would pay with a retinal scan. And and some of these payment systems were in Scandinavia, right? So you you know, you you think of, oh, the, these are countries with a lovely social safety net and they're so nice, but really they, they're not above putting uh, dispossessed people and gathering their, their biometric information and demanding that as a condition. So to me, once you have someone's biometrics in these systems, and once you start to connect it into state surveillance, uh, machine learning for artificial intelligence. Um, you know, that's the thing about blockchain is it's supposed to be permanent, right? Your permanent record. And people end up sort of being pushed into a corner often to um, end up in these systems of blockchain, not realizing the larger consequences. Now, the question is, will these blockchain identities um, ultimately coalesce, like would you have multiple blockchain identities that are attached to multiple systems? I think in this transition point, yes. But ultimately, the value of data both to machine learning systems and to social impact investing systems is that it's all interoperable, that they essentially begin to track all of your data, all of your purchase patterns. They're going to be working on getting um, physiological data from you, both from implantable and wearable technologies, um, your education data, the media you consume, all of that and being poured into a digital twin, um, not only of individuals, but of used to model whole societies and eventually like a planetary computer. You know, imagine, I think in some ways, some of these folks might picture that they're going to I don't know, bring heaven on earth when they have, you know, God replaced by artificial intelligence as a decentralized autonomous organization, right? Like the ultimate corporate personhood, right? The corporate uh, artificial deification of, of natural life, which I, I find incredibly just a manifestation of the level of domination of sort of Western scientism, like quote unquote, enlightened scientism upon the world. Um, so I find that incredibly dangerous. I'm sure there are many people out there who would say, well, you know, how else are we going to take care of the poor? How else are we going to track people if they leave their house without their identity papers? How else are we going to do these things? Um, but I think the world as it exists currently with power concentrated in the hands of essentially a, a global finance defense sector that has very sophisticated levels of coercion, um, both psychological, behavioral, uh, physical, through the technologies, 
that we should not be rushing into this. And and so some of it comes with food assistance. Um, as I said, in Austin, this My Pass project that was funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was a health records, so electronic health records, that could be one. Um, electronic uh, transcripts for college, um, that's gonna be one that's rolling out. Um, that's a big part of what's going on in Texas with green light credentials and Highland, which is came out of Learning Machine. Um, the goal is electronic government on blockchain. Uh, the state of Illinois piloted a birth certificate program. Can babies consent to being on blockchain? <laughs> you know, um, clearly they cannot. Um, the first blockchain babies were born in Tanzania in 2018. Um, that baby was tracked, their mother's compliance to the medical protocol was tracked on blockchain before that child was born and that went into their record. So for me, these are all incredibly troubling because I don't think that we can trust the systems to have the interests of vulnerable communities at heart, especially once we start to look at what's happening with um, ESG, environmental uh, social governance investing, social impact investing, how all of this is being tied to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for education and poverty and hunger and healthcare um, into, into a, a planetary computing system. I, I have a lot of questions. And so um, if we as a society had a very robust conversation about it that really looked at the long range history and the history of social policy as having sort of a military imperial underpinning and I was outnumbered, well, then I would feel like God put me here and I did my best, you know, <laughs> to have the conversation. But right now, I, you know, I, I, I'm really just asking people to have the bigger conversation because it's far more complex than that we need some sort of an alternative digital payment system or that that it's limited to um, a vaccine passport because it's much, much bigger than that. You have pointed out, and I would hardly agree, that there is no way that we as adults are going to be retrofitted into this brave new augmented reality. Could you explain why we, as adults, will never be suited for this, and that it's the yet-to-be-born and the very young who are going to be groomed to live in the metaverse? Sure. Well, this is a concept I'm still sort of working out. Um, so I, I, I'd be glad to be wrong. And when I say that we're not going to be retrofit, it's not that I think that they're going to come and like, you know, wipe us all off the face of the planet in the next couple of years. I don't, I think there's still value in elder people um, for feeding data into this machine, right? We would have a unique data set that they would, that the AI would be interested in. Um, I sort of imagine this is this sort of larger predator energy system that really, really wants to be human, but is very abusive to, to, to the teachers of us being teachers of it, trying to teach it how to be human, that it, it won't ever get, get there, get the soul, but it really wants it really hard. Um, so essentially, when I was working in the education space, I was bumping up against quite a bit of money pouring into something called executive function research in young children. And I didn't quite understand it because why would you need that for kids? I mean, you might need it as an impact investing scheme or data metrics, but um, it didn't make much sense to me in terms of the the imperative of of managing executive function, managing it, it, it interfaces with resilience, mindfulness, grit, um, until I started better understanding mixed reality. And that the metaverse you know, it has various elements. 
some of it lives exclusively digitally, but then the plan is to remake the physical world with additional layers of information. So if you imagine the material environment outside your your house or even inside your house um, being layered like with a like a um, a computer aided design map or you know a GIS map that you could add or subtract layers of information. And I think that amount of information is too much for the human mind at present to process all at once. To, to be forced into a moment that instead of having a natural synthesis of, of the information that you see in the world around you that helps inform in your view of the world and helps you make decisions about how you navigate the world from your own internal compass, that all of it is sort of brought up at once and thrown at your face. And then that would make you just want to bury your face in your hands, right? It would be too much. Um, I sort of say, you know, you don't even imagine how many things you don't notice, right? Sometimes you're driving and then you think, oh, you're on a road that you know all the time, right? And you just realize like you hadn't really noticed the last few minutes, right? Because you're in that zone of knowing it. Or, um, you know, I had a, a, a vase of wilted flowers on my kitchen table from the farmer's market. And over the course of the day, I probably walked by that vase of wilted flowers three or four times before it registered to me that, oh, I should probably put those in the compost, right? Um, so some part of my consciousness was seeing it, my eyes were seeing it, but it didn't register as actionable information till at some point, but that came internal for me. And so if you imagine like our consciousness being bombarded with so much information of the metaverse and navigating it, I, I sort of imagine it like, um, you know, when people talk about what it's like to be on the spectrum and being overwhelmed by social cues or noise or sensory information, um, that, that that level of discomfort is something that with the metaverse, most everyone is going to be pushed into. And those of us who have a way of navigating the world, our brain is, is a, is, has its own physiology, its own sort of schema shortcuts that help us make decisions more quickly. Um, and it's still plastic to a certain extent, but we have ways that we think about these things. We have worldviews. We have, you know, unless we have something big to, to change how we see the world, we mostly just sort of tweak around the edges by the time you're, you know, in your 40s or 50s. Um, it's going to be harder for us to navigate the metaverse in this augmented cognition, because this this goes into wearable technology that the military has been working on for quite some time, is, is that you would actually have like a headpiece that would amplify or suppress information depending on um, a situation, right? They frame it as being in a situation room and that you would have windows that would open and close and get bigger and smaller depending on how you should process the information, all the information coming at you. But I think the idea is ultimately that there would be some augmented wearable that would be doing that modulation for you in the metaverse. Um, that would be really uncomfortable for most older people. But I think for the children, they're the ones in the 2030, 2050 time horizon that will be the young adults of what they imagine the age of the metaverse unfolding to be. And so the executive function research, I think, and the focus on cognitive neuroscience in very young children, and while it is woven into impact investing, I think it is about trying to figure out how to begin to shape their minds to fit into a world, into the world that is being made, this world of data, this world of data analytics, of wireframes, of smart contracts. So that's sort of where I'm at at this point. Um, I'm not saying that we're, we're going to be you know, eliminated, but I think that there are, are actual implications for how our 
um, neurological function of these young children will need to be to, to, to not have their minds fall apart in the world as it's coming. So, you know, these are all things I think we should be talking about. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher Allison McDowell. Today's show, Blockchain Keys Unlock a Murky Metaverse. What you don't know about digital twins could hurt you. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, yes. For instance, why is it that the new generation, which is being trained to be part of this digital metaverse, have to be able to process information differently than we as adults do? How are the very young being changed to navigate within what you describe as an augmented cognition framework, a template of human plus, you've said. You know, again, and I will just reiterate, this is sort of my conjecturing, my thinking out loud based on things that I'm reading, right? And so um, mostly a lot of these technologies are dual use and they, they frame them as one way and then then that there's other things going on. Um, so my, my sense is that the navigating the information is really crucial. And so a big part of what is coming online with blockchain um, in this fourth industrial revolution is the idea that you will have a digital twin. And this is something that um, has, is spoken about um, in quite a bit of detail by Nippon uh, Telephone and Telegraph. They have a, a report from um, early this spring that talks about their plans to essentially digitally mirror individuals and societies and material environments and then to optimize them. Now, digital twins have been around for a long time, but they're mostly mechanical. And so you might have a twin of an engine, say, and that, that twin of an engine lives in a digital space and you can use you know AI systems um, to figure out an optimal functioning calibration for the engine and then you can capture that and then you can apply that those findings and you can run them much faster than you could on the actual engine without breaking it the way if you had to do it on real engines and then you get the best the optimization you want and then you apply that to the real engine when i look and see how they're talking about digital twinning which the the open door to this is uh, electronic health records and uh, precision medicine and personalized medicine and things that are linked to like innovative high tech medicine that will very likely include the way they talk about it nano electronics and these various you know nanobots in your bloodstream and all sorts of life extension programs it's it's hard to imagine I mean haven't even figured out a lot of terrible <laughs> you know age related illnesses yet but they you know this is how they talk about it that they will create digital twins of people. And then the optimization that would happen between the, the digital engine and the regular engine, there's someone at the control system saying what the optimization intent is. How did you want that en engine to function? My larger question is, and for these children, is if you start to build a digital twin, you build a digital twin when um, you know, a pregnant woman who is on Medicaid um, starts to get uh, prenatal care on electronic health record. And then you track that child um, where they go to preschool and then you track all of their school scores and then you track all of their medical care and you track their zip code and their housing vouchers and their SNAP benefits and what they eat and all of these things. Um, if there's an optimization happening through the twin, 
which is how Nippon Telegraph and Telephone speaks about it. They say, the real person will affect the twin, but our goal is to have the twin affect the material person. Um, who gets to decide how a child is optimized, right? I mean, we have in literature the idea of these caste systems, you know, people who are engineered to fulfill certain parts of society, right? I mean, that literally that we, we joke about, well, just being a cogs in the machine, but literally, and, and not just people, because this will be the same for plants and animals and my, microbes and all of these things, that those who are who are viewing the world as a planetary computer are going to say, well, where does this thing, we need some more of this part, or this part is about to wear out. Can We need some lead time on the supply chain. And the blockchain is about tracking the supply chain systems. So, um, I don't know if that that helps explain it, but I mean, I, I I think it's the optimization and who decides. And I know that the world isn't fair; it's already not fair. But I think it will get more oppressive. And I think the sophistication of the steering systems, these digital nudges, uh, tied in with behavioral economics and labor force development and planned economies, um, will get to a point. I mean, for me, it's hard to imagine if it will get so extreme that people won't even notice anymore. And that's that's hard for me to imagine, but that's sort of like, will they get sophisticated enough that people won't realize what's happening to them? And then some days when I'm really like out there, I think, well, maybe it's already happened and we're already living in that world. <laughs> and somebody's engineering my digital twin from some remote place. Um, but I don't know. I guess we just have to do our best and, and have faith in like a higher power that it will work out. Now, from what you were saying, it sounded like the direction that they're headed in is to have your virtual twin actually control you rather than vice versa. Did you mean to imply that this may be where they're headed? Um, I think that is, yes. I mean, the Pond Telegraph and Telephone in their paper has said that that is what they would like to see happen. I mean, it says at this point, it doesn't say that they've done it. So that's good. Um, but then I think with knowing that and having that in mind, um, we really need to think very carefully about going down this road of even having digital twins, you know? Right. Um, and, and I will say, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be going to Austin and, you know, I was looking at, there was a federal release, a committee report about sort of the ethics of AI and implications. And the gentleman who is chairing that committee, his name is Peter Stone, and he's a computer professor at Austin. And he's the, um, you know, the, the, the new head of Sony AI in North America. But I think in some respects, we imagine like, oh, well, that's just the, you know, Japan Science and Technology Agency, their cyborg avatar capitalism project and Nippon Telegraph and Telephone or SoftBank. It's not here, but we're in the midst of these global systems and the technology systems are very much global. And, um, you know, a lot of the technological systems coming out of Japan have very checkered pasts regarding um the aftermath of World War II and some really terrible experimentation that took place um, that essentially was never prosecuted or surfaced. The, the Unit 731 and the U.S. government, for security purposes, just sort of wiped it under the rug and took the findings and and, uh, and kept them and, and moved on around bioweapons and um, some, really, some mass atrocities around that. So we have to understand that these large multinational technology companies, if you go back, if you walk back in history, um, I think people have 
a, a right to sort of question the overall ethics as part of this larger conversation. Like, who would we trust with our digital twin? I mean, to me, there are quite a number of people who are very interested in this idea of the straw man and trading on people's straw men. But I think in some ways, the digital twin is this idea of the central banking straw man coming out into the open, right? And and being being legitimized and then being part of these human capital bond markets. Right. And as you pointed out, that if their aim is to get your digital twin to control you, then of course the logical next question is who's controlling the digital twin? Right. I know. That's, I mean, that is the bigger question. And that, and that is, I think, my, one of my big concerns around artificial intelligence right now is that um, I've been digging into, you know, my, my frame is a, a lot about history um, because I, I live in Philadelphia and, and there's the, the history that is commonly understood history. And then there are these sort of secret subplots of history that you don't find out about till later. And so recently I've been looking into um, Thomas Scott, who was the chair of the Pennsylvania Railroad, which at the time was the largest global corporation and, and the push to have a corporate citizenship, corporations recognized by the uh, courts as citizens as back as early as the 1880s. And they sort of scammed their way through it. But um, this idea of what is the role of the corporation in society. Um, and this was, Scott went through, there was like the railroad strike of 1877 and, and this general strike of the railroads and there was great harm and many people killed and um, because of these robber barons, right? And so that infrastructure is still in place. I mean, sometimes it, 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 it hides behind, you know, innovation and progress, but it's, it's all still very much there. And so I, I keep thinking, well, the next phase of this is, you know, we have concentrated wealth in, in the hands of these small holding companies. Um, but then eventually, what if it gets consolidated down to like one unit, right? Like the artificial intelligence decentralized autonomous organization. And the other piece about blockchain that I forgot to mention is they're also conjecturing about putting your mind on blockchain. There's a woman, her name is Melanie Swan, and she's done a lot of research and conjecturing about that we would put our, our minds and our thought processes and our memories into blockchain. So, you know, again, dual use. If you have a stroke, they can just re-upload you, right? But imagine like having blockchains of brains and and this this force, you know, of, of trying to be human force, like trying to get in the back door to learn what the essence is of being human, what the essence is of natural life, not just humans, but, you know, other beings here, um, of trying to get in. But also, I think in some respects, it feels like having a certain level of disgust with natural beings too. So it's this yin yang side of things. But yeah, that would be the ultimate corporation is if you have like all of our brains on blockchain, uh, run by a, a global planetary computer. You know, I guess that's that's Hal or whatever. It's interesting that you mentioned the railroad because I just saw a picture of uh, the railroad being put through in the, you know, in the old days in the United States, and it was a picture of this iron horse, this railroad coming through, and guys with rifles on both sides shooting all the buffalo so that they could bring the train through. And it, it just sort of summed it all up for me. The destruction of the natural world so that we can move into this mechanical world. Exactly. I mean, and 
There's a very good book I would recommend. It's called Empire's Tracks by Manu Karuka, and it was looking at um, how the railroads operated and that they were these corporations that, that collaborated with the military. So the, the government provided the military force to remove the original people off of the lands to put this corporate railroad through, and then the, the give and take around the land development. Um, and what was quite interesting is it wasn't just the rails, that it was also the telegraph lines. And then after the telegraph lines became the fiber optic cables. And so there are these layers and layers of interconnectivity of modernity at the expense of, of, of the, the natural and the original, including you know, the original people of Turtle Island. And so eventually that, you know, they got to the golden spike in Ogden, Utah, you know, they closed up the rails and that was Leland Stanford, um, you know, Stanford University, which is a central player in so many aspects of both the computing and the finance and the cognitive neuroscience and, um, you know, many, many elements, um, but that history connects, right? And so as we look at, potentially facing off around, you know, a, you know, a global planned demolition of the economy, um, yes. you know, over the past 18 months through the central banking systems, um, that is the ultimate dispossession of the world from our access to the world as we know it. And, and for me, that was the, in many respects, the, the locomotives and the, the military killing the buffalo was the dispossession of of the original people because that was their food source was the buffalo. So it was this mass dispossession that happened in the name of progress. And now I feel like what we're facing is um, a mass dispossession at the hands of the not only the central banking systems, but the defense sectors, the technology sectors, the biotech, synthetic biology sectors to actually remove us from the sovereignty of our own living tissue, as frail and vulnerable as it may be, and selling us on this idea of sort of blockchain digital immortality and, um, you know, precision medicine. But that means that we'll have to live in their metaverse. And their metaverse is run by the people who are on the train shooting the buffalo. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher Allison McDowell. Today's show, Blockchain Keys Unlock a Murky Metaverse. What you don't know about digital twins could hurt you. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With regard to the fourth industrial revolution, I guess that's the World Economic Forum term, and you've just touched on this. Does the global economy have to be destroyed to make this fourth industrial revolution happen? Well, so essentially they're creating a globalized... Globalization is, is going to the next phase. And so, you know, we've, we've been living through um, the implications of, like, global supply chains and uh, reductions in labor and how that has fed dispossession and the, the prison industrial complex here for several decades, right? Um, and the policies that were going along with global trade in goods. So the next phase is actually global trade in services. And this is something, I think his name is Richard Baldwin, who's at the Institute of Geneva. Um, he speaks about uh, globalization 4.0 and globotics. And this idea that trade and services, which happens already to a certain extent, like we have digitally platformed labor around tech work, uh, some education work, uh, some, uh, you know, call center work, these things that are already happening as, at a gig level on global uh, leaderboards. 
But the next phase is that they will get automatic translation services of languages and that they aim to get uh, remote robotics such that we would, through a haptic suit and virtual reality, sort of place ourselves in a place on the other side of the planet and, and conduct business through a robot whether that means um, a service-related job or running a factory or something, and that all of this would run um, based on reputation scoring and AI would start to sort out who gets what jobs um, based on digital badges and tokens, all of which, again, are on blockchain. They need the blockchain so that you will have, quote-unquote, trust um, when the AI assigns you a gig task to run the machine or you know, operate a robot in a Japanese cafe or, you know, teach a child or, I mean, there was a United Nations paper where under Globotics, they were literally excited about the day where uh, housekeepers in Kenya could clean hotel rooms in Norway. And that gardeners in Mexico could mow lawns in Texas, all through remote robotics. There's a company called Sanctuary AI that's working on this. So, what, what Baldwin says in this globalization 4.0 is that it is a totally different kind of physics applied to labor economics. And the, the potential for growth, quote unquote, you know, air quotes, like whatever growth means in the metaverse, and the speed at which it will happen, because it's no longer that, you know, a carton of grapes are picked in Chile and then packaged and taken to a warehouse and put on a cargo container and shipped across the Caribbean and taken out off the wharf and you know taken to another warehouse and then end up in a grocery store. Th- that has a certain amount of physical finite time because it's a material good. When you have a digital representation of grapes, it's instantaneous. And that's what these NFTs are for. I mean, I don't think we're quite to having NFT food, um, but many, many other digital items are already being sold in that way and represented in that way. My, my friend, um, Roel Diego, he writes at Silicon Icarus, and he has a very interesting piece about fashion and clothing and that they Im- imagine a future where everybody just wears like a sustainable shift and then you can project holographically some fancy fashion on top of it. But of course, all of that will probably depend on what you can pay and what tokens are in your social credit locker, you know, what kind of outfit you're allowed to wear if you're allowed to wear something other than the standard muslin jumpsuit, you know, or nanotech jumpsuit, I guess it would be. Oh, my God. <laughs> You have said that artificial intelligence wants to learn how to be human and learns from people. How does AI do this? Is it through these virtual headsets that I see being advertised on Twitter? Well, I mean, I think it's in all of our digital footprints, right? You know, they're trying to digitally twin the world, and that's all part of the machine learning and the pattern recognition and the predictive profiling. And so all of this information becomes aggregated and weighted um, and and used to inform the algorithms to make future predictions. And it's like reinforced learning. Um, And what, what we're moving into now is that the ability of artificial intelligence systems to start to learn from unstructured data. Now, once everything is on blockchain, it will be much easier because that allows the data to be structured and organized in a way that is much more efficiently consumed by the algorithms. Uh, right now, there's just a whole lot of unstructured data out there, but it's still learning. It's learning through these reinforcement systems. Um, and for me, it's sort of like a frame. Um, 
you know, John Trudell is someone whose teachings, he was a leader in the American Indian movement that I, I really hew to, and he frames this as a predator energy, right? And so that's something I've adopted. If you understand that beyond whatever scheming financial deals and transactions are being laid on this data, that the people who are running these games, you know, with our lives, they have more money than they can ever spend. And they really have already have such concentrated power to like really, you know, treat people like playthings already. And so certainly they could always have a little more, but I think ultimately uh, there's, there's a program in place, this guy Perry Marshall called Evolution 2.0, and it's about revisiting evolution um, post sort of Darwinian and looking back at Lamarck and looking at intelligent design and looking at information and communication theory as it applies to the world and, and, and transmitters and receivers and how that information is conveyed. Um, and in that relationship of the transmitter and receiver of information, whether that is, you know, a chemical process or your DNA or happening in, you know, a fungal network or an alphabet or a story being told that communication happens because they understand the encryption, they understand the meaning that is shared. But there is a third party outside that made the initial communication possible. And that is the higher power, like that is God. And so my sense from looking at this Evolution 2.0 project that they have underway, it's like one of these big competitions that will give you $10 million if you, you know, figure it out, figure out essentially the third party part, the God part, is that if they could get enough data to crack the code of life, then maybe they too can be God, right? Like maybe they can they can attempt a coup of God. Now, I don't think that's actually possible, but in the games that they must play and, you know, in their minds about what they're doing, I think that is that is what their goal is, is to figure out the basic level of how life communicates with itself, how the universe communicates with itself, and then usurp that place to become the ultimate coder. So... For me, if you look at things in that framework, then all of the data that is collected through these devices in the name of transparency, accountability, trackability, supply chains, blockchain, everything, is really about them getting so granular that they can get closer and closer to cracking the code. Um, and so the, the extremes of lived experience, um, whether that is happening on how you're consuming your media, what you're watching in a virtual reality headset, what the biosensors that are monitoring all your organs. But I think foundationally, um, what they most want is people's spirits, people's souls, because, you know, I'm sure they have a lot of Fitbit data. I'm sure they have a lot of, you know, whatever, uh, track my ride data or, you know, people's, um, you know, leaderboard coupon shopping, you know, what they bought data. There's a lot of that random data out there, but it's the more unique data sets that I think if they're trying to get a little bit of everything to get this code broken, that's the stuff that they want. And unfortunately, that that means capturing the most beautiful aspects of, of being a human being, a natural human being, and, and probably the, the worst as well. You have said that we cannot consent to this mechanical consciousness that is oncoming, that we are keepers of natural life. I like how you go out into the world on foot exploring and allow what you notice or what catches your eye to inform your next move and lead you to your next, shall we say, ceremony. I like how you allow the natural world to give you clues. Practicing reciprocity with the natural world is the way to go, don't you think? 
I mean, it feels right to me. (laughs) (laughs) All I can do is, is, is model, I think. And, um, you know, there's no guidebook to this. I don't think any of us expected to be quite put in this position of trying to figure out such big and weighty things. But for me, I'd say, like, I like to live in the space of possibility. It's not always easy. And I can't say, like, I'm, I'm perfect at it all the time. But if you imagine that the world has these gifts waiting for you out there, and, you know, part of what I, I, I think about within the metaverse and information theory, as long as we still hold navigating our own consciousness and our relationship to the world outside of having it be subject to mechanical intervention, is that we can weave the story together that we want to live in. And, and so, you know, I've had some a bit of conflict with people in, in the recent past around this. And I, I won't say that, that, that there's any one proper approach at what is what makes sense to you. But for me, the story that I want to weave is something that there's a story of redemption, there's a story of healing, there's, a, there's, a, there's possibilities, and that is what the world offers if you go out and look for it. It's not a war story. It's, it's, a, it's a love story, really. Allison McDowell, thank you so much, and thank you for all of your incredible work. Oh, well, thanks. I just like to think about things, you know, and we can all do it. I've been speaking with Allison McDowell. Today's show has been Blockchain Keys unlock a murky metaverse. What you don't know about digital twins could hurt you. Alison McDowell is a pioneering independent researcher. Her work interrogates the global finance and technology interests that, under the rising biosecurity state, are advancing a transhumanist program that would virtualize humans as digital commodities to be fed into futures markets to profit hedge funds. She asserts that it's time to unite from a place of love and spirit to halt an artificial intelligence coup of the natural world. There's a scorched path and a green path. It's time to choose. Visit her website at wrenchinthegears.com. That's wrenchinthegears.com. Access her videos on YouTube by searching for Allison McDowell. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Come